morning, everybody. Uh, this morning, we are going to touch on a subject uh, that may be a little uh, painful for some of us, just to be honest. We're going to talk about marriage and divorce. And I wanted to kind of preface everything this morning by just kind of putting, not a disclaimer, but by nuancing everything. Uh, because I know that it can be a, a difficult subject to talk about for a lot of different reasons, for a lot of different people. Um, a lot of us have been touched by divorce, whether by adults in our own marriages or as children, and that can bring up a lot of different feelings, some of which is, is entirely personal, and some of which because traditionally the church may not have always been the most gracious in talking about divorce. Um, its handling sometimes has been mismanaged. That was my experience, anyway. Uh, as a kid, my parents split up when I was 17. Um, and there was no infidelity or anything. They just didn't think they could make it work anymore. Uh, but my mom technically was the one that filed. And I remember at church one Sunday morning, one of the elders taking her aside in the church lobby uh, and just lighting her up, honestly, uh, about how this was wrong and here's what the Bible says and you're tearing your family apart. And then when he had sufficiently said his piece and brought her to the brink of tears, he went off to worship and she was just sort of alone there in the church lobby. And maybe you had a similar experience, or maybe that's just your kind of perception of how the church talks about divorce and treats it sometimes. Uh, I want to encourage us, if that is some sort of, we have some, a chip on our shoulder coming into this, to hear the entirety of the message. Sometimes that will be difficult, because we're going to read what Jesus says, and Jesus speaks in absolutes, and absolutes can sound rather unyielding at times. But if we listen to the whole passage, the whole message this morning, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture, and I think we'll be surprised at how gracious Scripture really is while still speaking the truth about what God feels about marriage and so on. So I just want to put that out there and ask that if you have that patience, if you can lend that ear, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew in chapter 5. This message is a part of a year-and-a-half-long series that we're going to be in called A Year-ish with Jesus. Uh, we're just working through the book of Matthew, uh, reading what Jesus has to say. We're going to do our best not to skip over anything, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. Last week we talked about sex, so that was a real good example of this principle at work. Uh, but we're looking at Matthew chapter 5. We're also going to be looking at Matthew chapter 19 this morning. So if you don't feel like flipping back and forth in your Bible, you can always just follow along on the screen behind or download the FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device, tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes along with our passage pulled open, ready to engage with and get the most out of our time together. So to say that our message this morning is about divorce is not accurate, actually. We are going to talk about divorce. That's the subject of, of Jesus's, the question that's asked to Jesus. But really, we're going to talk about marriage because that seems to be more what Jesus is interested in talking about. And so there's something in here for everybody. And you kids right there, listen, because like 18 to 20 to 30 years from now, all right, you're going to really wish you had. Um, so we're talking about all that stuff. But we need a place to start. So we're just going to start with kind of a big question of what is marriage from a biblical point of view? And Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 help us understand that a little better. If nothing else, we can understand marriage is a covenant not to be easily dissolved. It is a covenant. It is a binding agreement not to be easily dissolved. That's not always how our culture sees marriage today. You probably have heard the figure 50% of all marriages end in divorce. 
That's not just an anecdote. Like statistically, year after year after year, sometimes it's a little higher, sometimes it's a little lower. It's usually about 50%. About half of marriages end. And there are a number of reasons why people give for why they file for divorce. Uh, There's one national survey that was done in 2020. Uh, The reasons broke down like this. And you're going to notice all these percentages add up to way more than 100%. That's because people were allowed to give multiple reasons and and explanations for why they filed. 73% of respondents cited a lack of commitment as a reason for their divorce. 56% said that they argued too much. 55% reportedly uh, reported infidelity. 46% said that they married too young. 45% cited unrealistic expectations. 44% said they felt a lack of equality in the relationship. 41% said that they felt a lack of preparation for marriage contributed to their divorce. And 25% of them cited domestic violence or abuse. Again, way more than 100% because people could give multiple reasons for why they filed and why the marriage came to an end. That survey in itself kind of illustrates the complexities and the nuance of this issue. There usually isn't just one reason why a marriage dissolves. It's a complicated thing. And when we look at this survey, we could probably argue back and forth, are these valid, are these not valid? That's not really the point. The point is, it is a conversation that happens in our culture. It's a conversation in which divorce is readily acceptable for any number of different reasons. And we might assume that that conversation today is very different from the one people were having in the biblical era, but we would be very wrong. The divorce rate was probably lower given cultural pressures, but there's plenty of evidence that this same conversation about marriage and divorce and how often and why was happening in the days of Jesus. In fact, a little before. In fact, it's really important that we understand this historical conversation if we're going to understand what Jesus says and why he doesn't say some of the things he doesn't say. It was a conversation between, or really a debate, between two different rabbis. One was named Rabbi Shammai, and he was what we would maybe call the more conservative rabbi. The other was Rabbi Hillel, and he was what we might call the more liberal rabbi. And everything really revolved around their interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. This is the passage in the Old Testament where God outlines divorce and how to go about it for the Israelites. And we're not going to read it all because there's a lot of stipulations and if this, then that kind of things. But we will read verse 1 because that's really the heart of the debate and why it started. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, it says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and then sends her from his house... And then it goes on, then he should do this, that, and the other. And that's where the stipulations come in. But the heart of the matter really is there in verse 1. If a husband finds something displeasing because he finds something indecent about her. Well, what does it mean for something to be indecent? That's kind of a broad term. That's where the debate was happening. If we were to look at Rabbi Hillel, the more liberal one, his interpretation was that something indecent was Really, anything displeasing to a husband. Do you argue too much? Divorce. Is she not keeping up appearances? Divorce. The literal example he gave, if she burns your dinner too often, get her out of there. Divorce. Hillel was sort of the easy divorce guy. 
And I'm going to use that term easy divorce several times this morning. I don't in any way mean to belittle or demean somebody's reasoning or rationale. I just need a term to distinguish it from the more strict interpretation that we see in Rabbi Shammai. He was the more conservative one. And when he read Deuteronomy chapter 24, he said indecent is only something sexually immoral, infidelity. Or if there was a sexual encounter previous to the marriage, or if there was something incestuous, like all of that, that's completely indecent. That's grounds for divorce. Anything else, just suck it up and get through it. If you argue too much, well, it takes two to argue. No divorce. If she's not keeping up appearances, well, go take a look in the pond at your own reflection. You probably aren't a catch either. Did she burn your dinner? Learn to cook. Deal with it. That was Rabbi Shammai, the more conservative one. And it's really important that we understand this conversation because it was a widespread and widely known conversation in religious and even non-religious circles in the Jewish community in the first century. And with that in mind, when we read what Jesus says, it starts to make maybe a little bit more sense. So this is Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, Sermon on the Mount, one of the most well-known sermons that he ever preached, certainly one of the most recorded, and here's what he has to say. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So there's Deuteronomy. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here's Jesus' words. If you divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality, no go. He seems to be agreeing with Rabbi Shammai. And this is the entirety of what he has to say on the Sermon on the Mount when it comes to the issue of divorce. It's not a lot. Which makes me think maybe this isn't the most exhaustive statement on divorce that Scripture has to offer. Sometimes historically the church has looked at this and said, only sexual immorality, anything else, no. Not, for, not permitted. But what about other things like abuse? Does that not seem like a reasonable reason to escape a situation for your own safety, for the safety of your children? Or are women supposed to just remain in abusive relationships where they are emotionally and mentally and physically battered day after day, and maybe the same thing will happen to their children just because of what? Jesus, in one very limited passage, didn't say that specific thing. Believe it or not, that's been a situation that the church has been guilty of, suggesting that women stay in abusive situations because it isn't specifically mentioned in this one passage. Maybe, though, Jesus isn't being exhaustive. Because that certainly doesn't sound like it's upholding the vow to honor and to cherish somebody. And it certainly doesn't sound like something we read in the rest of Scripture that husbands are to strive for and live up to. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker, meaning the physically weaker partner, and as heirs with you in this gracious gift of life. In other words, respect your wives, honor and cherish them. Certainly do not abuse them, but treat them as sisters and partners in the wonderful blessings of the gospel that you both share in so that nothing will hinder your prayers. By the way, men, if you don't do this, God may not listen to your prayers. That sounds pretty significant. So maybe Jesus isn't being exhaustive when he preaches this. Maybe, and this seems more likely, he is speaking to a group of people who are very familiar with a specific conversation happening in their specific time period. What does Rabbi Hillel say? What does Rabbi Shammai say? 
Sometimes we forget that Jesus didn't sit down on that mount and say, you know what, what are a bunch of people in Monmouth, Illinois in 2023 going to need to hear today? He had a whole crowd of people listening right there, first century, dealing with first century conversations, and this was one of them. I think it's far more likely Jesus is speaking to a specific context and a specific question. Who's right here? Is easy divorce okay, or is Rabbi Shammai okay? Is he right? We look at this, we see that sexual immorality is the reason that Jesus gives, because that's probably the conversation that was happening in that day. And when you think about sexual immorality, it makes sense that this would be the go-to example. It's probably the clearest demonstration and the clearest example, infidelity, I mean, of rending a marriage or severing a union. The biblical picture of a marriage is two becoming one flesh. We're going to read Jesus talk about that in Matthew chapter 19. It's this idea that two people would join their lives together so intimately that they would become entangled with one another in heart and mind, that their affairs, that their lives, that their wills would be meshed to be almost inseparable. They constitute a whole. In this case, it is no longer my wife Lindsay and Jordan, it is Jordan and Lindsay. But divorce and and other weighty betrayals like them, or sorry, uh, adultery and other weighty betrayals like them, They attempt to drive a wedge in between that inseparable union and cleave them in half. If you've ever chopped wood before, uh, you know, sometimes you get a really big log and you can't just hit it with the axe, you got to get a splitter or like a a wedge or something. And you kind of whack it in the middle of the log and then you take your sledge and you just start banging on that splitter. And with every blow, that blade is driven deeper and deeper and deeper into the log. And on its way down, it tears and rends and severs every single one of those fibers that doesn't want to separate until the whole thing falls in half. That's a pretty good picture of the kind of weighty betrayal that infidelity commits. It ends, it severs that inseparable union. But it's not the only kind of weighty betrayal that can do that. We mentioned one earlier, abuse. That can sever that union through a weighty betrayal. Maybe those are the kinds of things we need to be looking at. Certainly, we can agree that Jesus is certainly saying marriage is important and it is a covenant not to be easily dissolved. And easy divorce, like the kind that Rabbi Hillel would suggest or that our culture would sometimes suggest, is not in alignment with what God intended that union to be. And if there is no weighty betrayal involved, and yet we're pursuing divorce, then we are the ones committing the betrayal. We are committing an adultery-like offense. That's why Jesus phrases it this way. Anyone who divorces his wife makes her the victim of adultery, meaning there was no weighty betrayal that severed the union. A husband's pursuit of divorce is the act that severed the union. He betrayed her. Or if anyone marries a divorced woman, it's certainly not talking about women who were divorced. Remarriage is permitted in Scripture, but it's talking about rather women that provoked a divorce from their husbands. Women could be wily back then, all right? And sometimes this happened. A woman would provoke her husband to divorce so that she could marry somebody else. And Jesus is saying there was no weighty betrayal that severed the union. It was her actions that severed the union. That was the offense. This is what Jesus has to say on this subject. It's not a lot, but it's pretty absolute and pretty stark. And at times it makes it difficult to hear because marriage is hard and life is complicated And it's nuanced, and absolute statements don't really take nuance into account. And that's why I started things the way that I did. 
And I would encourage you, if, if you're hearing these and you're thinking, man, that's just too harsh, just wait. There's more coming. And if you're hearing this and saying, I don't know, that sounds kind of lenient. Like Jesus said adultery and that's it. Nothing else matters. I would encourage you to listen to what else is coming. And then maybe consider the impact of grace and the place of it in all relationships. I'll tell you, when I hear Jesus say this stuff, my reaction isn't either of those. Mine is, I wish he had said more. There's just not a lot here. He doesn't talk about it a lot. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things he doesn't say, which leads me to believe that maybe Jesus doesn't really want to talk about divorce. Not that he's afraid to talk about it, but he's just not interested in it. When we read through the rest of his ministry, he seems far more interested in talking about marriage. And what is marriage? And what struggles cause divorce to even come into the equation? That seems to be the gist of Matthew chapter 19. And if we were to sum that up before we turn there, we, we could easily just call it this. So many marriage difficulties and divorce stem from the same root cause. It's a hard heart. That's our summary statement. Let's turn there and take a look at it. Matthew chapter 19. He says this in verse 3. So some Pharisees came to him to test him. So we already know that their motives are disingenuous. They came to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So you can probably hear that conversation, that debate again between Shammai and Rabel, uh, sorry, Hillel and, and Shammai. What is the permitted reason for divorcing? Is it any reason? Can we do that like Hillel says? And Jesus says, haven't you read, he, uh, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So I think it's interesting they come to Jesus with a question about divorce. Is it true that you can divorce for any and every reason? And Jesus, instead of answering, wants to talk about marriage. Let me tell you guys about marriage and what marriage is. That's why I say, I don't know if Jesus is really interested in talking about divorce. He seems far more interested in making sure we understand the nature of marriage. And what he describes is what we discussed earlier, two becoming one flesh, our lives and our essence being so entangled and intertwined that they become essentially one. And divorce is something that severs that indivisible union. It's not what God desires or intends. But that's not the end of the conversation. Look at what they go on to say. If I can get my phone to not shut off. Verse uh, seven. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So this is actually a really good question. Because we've taken all this time to talk about marriage and how God desires it to be this indivisible union and how divorce betrays that. And yet, we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and God himself gives his divine word on how to go about and organize divorce. Now that seems a little contradictory, doesn't it? And so the Pharisees are asking this question, bringing this tension to the forefray. And here's what Jesus has to say. This is the heart of the matter, okay? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. It's a lot of very similar information except this little bit that he says there at the beginning. Moses, and really God, permitted this because your hearts were hard. Hard-heartedness 
is the issue here. So many of our marriage difficulties and so many divorces, actually all divorces according to Jesus, the root cause is hard-heartedness. It's a lack of grace and humility. If we were going to define it, we'd say grace and humility, uh, when they're lacking, that produces a hard heart. And we'll get to why we have that definition in a little bit. But just with those two factors in mind, let's take a look back at that survey, that national survey of why people filed for divorce. Let's just look at a few of them and see, did a lack of grace and humility play into any of this? We read that 56% of people said that they argued too much. That's why they divorced. I want you to think back to the last divorce you had with your spouse. Did you argue because some deep betrayal kicked off that argument? Some adultery-like offense really stoked the fires? Or was your last argument because they used the wrong tone of voice? Or you used the wrong tone of voice? It's probably the latter. Your last argument, was it because there was some weighty offense that threatens the union of your marriage, or did they forget to pick up the dry cleaning again? It's probably something similar to the latter. Now, it's certainly possible we argued about some very weighty betrayals. It's possible. But most of our arguments in life are not over those deep, deep issues. Most of them are over surface-level things, annoyances, frustrations, inconveniences. Our expectations are not met. We have some need that's not being met. Not to say those are unimportant, but they are not threatening the sanctity of our marriage. Arguing happens because either we lack graciousness, the ability to just let stuff go or to forgive or accept that our spouse is not perfect, or because we lack humility. We're unable to lower our own self-importance while also considering the significance of our spouse's point of view at the same time. Grace and humility go a long, long way in circumventing a lot of arguments. But when they're lacking, well, yeah, we're going to argue a lot. Our marriage is going to seem like it has a lot of problems. 46% of people said that they filed for divorce because they married too young. I don't really understand that. Um, Personally, my wife and I, we were 21 when we got married, which is not the youngest, but it's younger, I guess. That's subjective. And we've had ups and downs, but divorce has never even been a thought in the mind. And conversely, I've known people who got married in their 40s, and they were married for about two or three years, and then they filed. So youth doesn't really seem to be the issue here, the hindrance. But I will say this, youth is not always conducive to humility. And that's not necessarily the case, but it's just you haven't lived long enough for life to beat you up a little bit and humble you. Does that make sense? As we go through life and struggle, we're just humbled a little bit. I know early in our marriage, uh, like I said, we were 21, we didn't know how to argue. We knew how to argue, but we just didn't know how to argue productively, right? It took us a few years to figure that out. And we never yelled and we never screamed and we were never mean to each other. We were just very sharp and to the point. And it wasn't uncommon that our arguments would end with nobody really resolving anything and my wife going to the bedroom and crying and me sitting on the couch with my arms crossed saying, I'm not going to follow her. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't yell. I made my point. She's just too emotional. And you know what? There were probably a few instances in which that were true. But here's one of these secrets of marriage. If you don't know this, this is going to blow your mind. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. 
Being right is stupid and a waste of time. It does nobody any good. When you're young or when you lack humility, you think winning an argument or being right is really important. But as you grow in humility, you come to understand it's one of the most worthless things in the world. You're going to be a very, very lonely winner. I tell people in marriage work all the time, if you win an argument, your marriage loses. If any individual wins or elevates their ego or their sense of self-importance above the significance of their spouse, your marriage has lost. It's a win the battle, lose the war kind of a thing. Humility. Humility goes a long, long way in circumventing some of this hard-heartedness, this pride, this arrogance that contributes to so many of our marital spats and problems and divorces. And humility has to start somewhere. So, fellas, it's going to be you. And sometimes it's more of a challenge for us. We're competitive and we're driven or whatever. We're just hard-headed sometimes. But here's the thing. God calls us to lead our families. And that doesn't mean we have to be, you know, this authoritarian or it's my way or the highway. That's not good leadership. He calls us to lead. And many, many times that means setting the standard. Our families and our marriages are going to follow the standard that we set. If we lose our cool, if we're hard-headed, if we dig on our feet and we say, I'm right, you're wrong, well, our marriage is going to follow that path. But if we set the tone for humility, if we say, I will consider my spouse, my children, my neighbors, not only my own interests, but their interests as well, your marriage is going to follow suit. And here's the thing, even if our spouses don't follow in humility, Do it anyway. Nobody ever said leadership was fair. With disproportionate calling comes disproportionate responsibility, but also a disproportionate blessing because we have the opportunity to echo Joshua's words. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the tone we get to set modeling that humility, that's how we live out what Peter wrote for us in chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. We lead, so let's lead well. There's another reason that survey we need to look at. 45% of people cited unrealistic expectations for the reason they filed for divorce. That's a very broad reason. That could mean a whole lot of things. What I found is that a lot of times people have unrealistic expectations of their spouse. I kind of shot myself in the foot very early in my relationship with my wife. She was, truth be told, my first serious girlfriend. And so she was like my first serious Valentine's Day. And I had all of these other Valentine's Days to just sort of think like, well, this is what I would do on Valentine's Day or this is what I would do. And then when I finally had somebody to have for a Valentine's Day date, I got really excited and I just did all the ideas. All the ideas I had come up with over the last years, right? And it was an amazing date. I'm just gonna say it. This isn't humble, okay? It was great. It was one of the best dates we've ever had, maybe in the history of all dates. And then the next year came. I had nothing. Turns out, I really only had one good date in me. I'm not romantic. I'm not a big grand gesture guy. Uh, And so we watched a movie and we ate some snacks and that was Valentine's Day. It was not very great. 
And my wife, she loves these grand gestures and she loves feeling pursued and she loves, you know, this idea of, of this grand romance and that's just not me. But grace allows me to fall short in that regard. She is gracious enough to accept that I have shortcomings, that I have flaws. I'm not always going to live up to that expectation. In this regard, I am rarely going to live up to that expectation. That grace allows me to be an actual person. And that's the kind of grace that is necessary in our relationships. The grace to accept that our spouse is probably not going to live up to our expectations. Not because they don't care, not because they're not trying, but because they're a human being. Grace allows our spouse to fold the towels the wrong way or put the toilet paper on the wrong way. Grace allows our spouse to maybe put on a few pounds and not look the way they did when we first got married. Grace allows our spouse to not be in the mood as often as we would want. Grace allows our spouse to take a little longer on that to-do list we put together than maybe we would have liked, even though we've asked multiple times for multiple weeks. Grace allows our spouse to have shortcomings and shortfalls. And grace reminds us that we are reminded, or that we are married to an actual person, to an actual living, breathing person, instead of our expectations for a person. And that is so important to remember. We are married to an actual person, not our expectations of a person. Grace allows us to forgive. Grace is crucial. Humility and grace, we need both of them to fend off this hard-heartedness that causes so many of our marital problems and leads to divorce. And the reason we defined this as grace and humility is really because of how Matthew has written this whole section. This little bit about marriage is sandwiched between two stories in the book of Matthew. The one that precedes is where the apostle Peter comes to Jesus and says, how often should I forgive Jesus? And Jesus basically says, always. It's a story about grace. The story that follows, Jesus is surrounded with little children and people tell the kids, get away from Jesus, bah, you know. They didn't kick the kids, don't worry. But Jesus says, no, 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 let the kids come. In fact, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you need to be more like these little children, these humble creatures. Humility and grace are what sandwich this story together. And it's not a coincidence. It's an intentional structural choice by Matthew to emphasize what's necessary to fend off hard hearts. But even beyond that, if we were just to look at a biblical picture of what marriage is, we come to see the significance of humility and grace. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in all things. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, there's a whole sermon series in here about the relationship between husband and wife that we can go into sometime. We've done it. It's a great series. Check out the podcast. But I hope that you'll notice the metaphor that's being brought to the attention here. The relationship between husband and wife is a metaphor for the relationship between Christ and his church. That's the relationship that's front and center here. This Jesus who humbled himself, who stepped out of heaven, who put on flesh, who laid down his life so that we could be saved, that is the epitome of humility. And that's what he showed us. This Jesus purchased grace for us through the shedding of his blood that all of our sins, every trespass, every offense could be 
overshadowed by grace and mercy and compassion. That's the epitome of grace. That's what he has shown us. That's the backbone of the gospel. And it ought to be the backbone of our relationships with our spouse as well. That humility and grace that Jesus teaches us is to permeate our relationship because we are a living, breathing metaphor for the relationship between Jesus and his church for the world to look at and go, that looks pretty good. Humility and grace. So here's our takeaway for this morning. We're going to sum it all up now. I'm getting windy and we got to wrap this up. Humility and grace are how we fend off the hard-heartedness that causes so many problems in our marriages. And as Jesus said, it leads to every divorce. Humility and grace. If we can cultivate those and grow in those, we're not going to really have to worry whether we have a legitimate reason for divorce or not. The bad news is that sometimes a breaking point does come. And it shouldn't. And it's not supposed to, but we live in a fallen world and we are not perfect people and sometimes divorce happens. Sometimes it's because of some weighty betrayal and an adultery-like offense. Sometimes it's because we as a couple have allowed sin to persist in our relationship and harden our hearts. Here's the good news. While God sees easy divorce as the result of hard-heartedness, he himself is not hard-hearted. And there is grace, not just for those marriages that prevail, but grace for those marriages that end as well. There is grace for those of us who have tried and fallen short, because that's all of us in some aspect. There's grace for those who pursue him and who seek him. It doesn't matter if our marriages are rock solid, if they're really rocky, or if they're shattered on the rocks. There is grace. That's why Jesus came, because people need grace. Divorced people need grace. Married people need grace. Single people need grace. We need it for different reasons, the different ways, to different extents, but the one commonality is that we all need it, and we all have access to it because of what he did. So if you're married today and things are going great, let me encourage you to continue to foster that humility and that grace. If you're married today and things are iffy, we'll say. I would encourage you to take a hard look in the mirror and say, am I being gracious and humble to my spouse? There's some great resources on our Right Now Media digital library. They are free. I'd encourage you to check those out. Do those studies as a couple. They can generate some great healing conversations. If you are uh, here today and, and you have gone through a divorce, I just want to say, first off, I'm sorry. I know that hurts, but I want to encourage you and assure you You are not less than. You are not an outsider here. You are loved. You are a person uh, who needs grace like the rest of us, and you're somebody who can receive the grace of Jesus just like the rest of us. That the body has all kinds of different people, and we all struggle in different ways. I just want to encourage you and say there are always second chances. Don't beat yourself up, okay? Maybe learn humility, grace, grow from this, but be assured and encouraged. There is grace, and there is abundance, and there is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Sometimes your word is hard and it challenges us in different ways. And so I pray that our hearts would hear what you have to say, that we would come to understand the significance and the sanctity of this marriage union, that we would not take it lightly. For those of us who are married, I pray that we would cherish it and nurture it through grace and humility like Jesus taught us. For those of us who have had marriages end, I pray that we would embrace your grace that we would learn from our shortcomings, whatever may have contributed, that you would heal our wounds and our hearts and our hurts, 
And that if a second chance comes along, Father, that that marriage would be sanctified and pleasing to you. For those of us that remain single, Father, we pray that we just use every day to honor you, that we continue to grow in grace and humility like Jesus showed us, how a single guy showed us. And if we would use our lives to please you and honor you in every capacity you put before us. At the end of the day, we're just thankful for your mercy. We're people trying to make things work in a fallen world, and we thank you that you accommodate us. You've always accommodated us since the days of the Old Testament when Moses spoke about divorce. You accommodated because you get it. You walked with us in flesh. You suffered the way we suffer. You struggled the way we struggle. You get it. And so we praise you for identifying with us. And we praise you for how you have made us to be your own. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.